one of the major pieces of digestive health is the very things that we are exposing our digestive system to every day, which is the foods that we eat. So what are some of the foods that are very commonly consumed that could potentially be these big bullies that could potentially be a problem? And several come to mind. Welcome, you're on air with Ella, where we share simple strategies and truths from people who are doing something better than we are. Whether it's wellness or fitness and fat loss to just living better and with more energy or changing your mindset to accomplish more in your own life and succeeding however you define it. This is where we share the best of what we're learning from the experts and we're learning more every day. Live better, start now. of sitting down with Dr. Jillian Tita. Jillian is a medically trained naturopathic physician. She's also the co-author of Natural Solutions for Digestive Health, a book we're going to talk a little bit about today. And she's the creator of the Fix Your Digestion coaching and online programs. Dr. Jillian, besides being just one cool chick, is just a really knowledgeable expert in helping people fix their problems with digestive health. What do I mean? I mean gut problems. Dr. Jillian talks to us today about everything from fat loss to hormonal balance to bloating and to how your skin looks and how all of these things are entirely related very often to our gut health. And she talks about it in a way that is entirely understandable, medically relevant, but entirely understandable. And she draws connections that were new to me. Her book was so insightful to me that I actually hunted her down so that I could share her insight with you. And you're going to want to learn more after you hear this, but give it a go today. And if you have specific questions that we didn't get to in today's conversation, email them to me. Go to onairwithella.com, go to connect and send me an email because I am definitely going to have Dr. Jillian back on the show and we can do a straight up Q&A for you. So that's it for now. Check it out and we'll see you on the flip side. Dr. Jillian, you are on air with Ella. Thanks for joining us. Ella, thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it so much. Well, let me congratulate you. I want to start off by acknowledging that your book, Natural Solutions for Digestive Health, which you co-authored, has just enjoyed tremendous success. So congratulations on that. Thank you so much. Yeah, I'm proud of it. We're proud of it. Well, it has been an enormous help to me. I think I've bought about eight or 10 copies, so uh, you're welcome. (laughs) And I will link to this book in the show notes because we're going to spend a good time talking about the substance of the book today. So again, thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. Well, let's jump in. Talk to us a little bit, Dr. Jillian, about how you got here. I mean, what an interesting specialty. What led you to this place? So as you mentioned, Ella, I'm a medically trained naturopathic physician, which is not really a well-known designation, especially here in the area that we live in the in the southeastern part of the United States. But essentially, my education is such that I have attended a four-year postgraduate medical school. I have taken licensing exams. I've done a residency, so on and so forth. Beyond clinical and diagnosis and basic training, I've also been trained in things like nutrition and exercise and counseling and supplements and herbal medicines. So I have more tools in my toolbox besides just drugs, procedures, and surgery. So it's not that I'm opposed to those things. I actually am trained quite conventionally. It's just oftentimes there are things that we can do in our day-to-day life to help ourselves. And then in terms of the digestion piece, how I began to become an expert in that is that 
that is who literally started showing up in my practice when I began practicing. Everyone I saw had some type of gastrointestinal complaint. And so I began to see patterns and from those patterns began to use those good sort of holistic principles, began to get fabulous results, began to bring things online to reach a greater audience, sort of got discovered to write the book, Natural Solutions for Digestive Health. And so it's just been a really interesting adventure in terms of all that. So that's where I'm coming from. And it's, and it's also interesting is that through many uh, years of trial and error, I myself had discovered that I have a, a gluten sensitivity, which is also common in many of my clients. And that I sort of wasn't, ex- wasn't expecting because I'm Italian and I grew up like eating pasta and like you know, eggplant parmesan and like nightshades and dairy and, and like a lot of gluten and a lot of garlic bread and a lot of pasta. So it's kind of funny. I can't wait to dig into that because gluten and gluten-free is all the rage these days. And there's a lot of misconceptions about that. I know. It sure is. All right. We'll get there. But first I want, I want to connect with the listeners who are saying, you know, why are we talking about this? Frankly, and I wonder if you found this in your experience, Dr. Jillian, but I think people almost take digestive problems for granted. Mm-hmm. Like it, it's almost yeah. normal to have some discomfort or any number of problems. And I'm not sure people understand the role that digestive health plays in health. Can you elaborate on that just a little bit? Sure. I like to call the gut, you know, and the gut is our, our stomach, our esophagus, our small intestine, our large intestine, the liver. It is like the grand central station. So not only is it the avenue through which we intake and absorb and incorporate the nutrition from our food, it also plays a major role in other areas of the body. So not everybody knows this, but about two-thirds of our immune system actually resides in the gut. So the gut plays a major role in defense, not only from the immune system that lives there, but also from the stomach and like the mighty stomach acid that is there. Also, the gut is a major avenue through which we make and recycle our hormones. So it has an enormous impact in our endocrine or hormonal function. So thyroid health and endocrine health and women's health and men's health, all of those things. Also, the gastrointestinal tract has an enormous plexus or group of nerves that's equal to that of the spinal cord. So in other words, it has the most nerves in the body besides the brain. So what this means is that this has an extreme importance in neurological health and in stress. So for these reasons, and there's more, there's more connections. So there's not a single system in the body or cell in the body that is not interacting with the gastrointestinal system every single day. So in this way, I call the gut the grand central station of the body. That makes sense. And I think you just got a lot of people's attention. So what I heard you say was, and I'm jotting notes down furiously as you're talking, two thirds of our immune system is actually housed in the gut. Mm -hmm. So it lives in specialized tissue there in, in specialized lymph tissue. And it actually makes sense. What nature did was because the the majority of pathogens that we are exposed to actually come through what we swallow. So what nature did is it put our immune system, two-thirds of it, in the gastrointestinal tract. Also, our large intestine houses the microbiome, which the microbiome, for your listeners, is a colony of beneficial bacteria. These are healthy, good bacteria that are 100 trillion strong. 100 trillion cells of these guys. So they actually outnumber our human cells about 10 to 1. And they weigh about 4 pounds. They're sort of like an organ in and of themselves. And they provide a myriad of benefits too, including immune health. 
Okay, so our gut health has everything to do with our immune system. It affects our hormonal balance. Yes. Okay, and then go on. Well, especially for the ladies, um, I often talk about, you know, a typical woman that I'll see at the clinic is she comes in, she has PMS, she has migraines, she has acne, and, she, you know, upon questioning, she's constipated. She hasn't told anybody she's constipated because, you know, that's embarrassing and no one likes to talk about pooping. However, when the bowel is constipated, let's talk about hormonal metabolism in a very simple way. When we are done with our hormones, they're sent to the liver. The liver packages them up and sends them to the colon for us to poop them out, okay? If we don't poop them out because we're constipated and the stool is just sitting in the large intestine, well, the large intestine has a blood supply. So then those hormones get resorbed back into general circulation. They end up back at the liver. The liver is already working on today's stuff. But now it has to work on yesterday's stuff, the day before, so on and so forth. So what happens is that we overall are exposed to more estrogens than we need. And guess what that does? That causes PMS. That can cause acne. So really all of those things, right, the acne, the, the, the PMS, the migraines, can all be solved by getting the woman to move her bowels. Instead, she goes to her gynecologist and talks about her PMS. She goes to the neurologist and talks about her migraines. She goes to the dermatologist and talks about her acne. She gets like a variety of medicines from all of those things when really all she needs to do is just poop every day. And then much of that would be cleared up. So in this way, we can begin to see some of the ripple effects that the gut has, even if the symptoms are not directly related to the gastrointestinal system. I am so glad that we are talking about poop because people are scared to talk about poop. <laughs> they are. <laughs> They're embarrassed to talk to you about it, their yeah. own doctor. Well, not me, not, not anymore because I like get right in there with them. But, you know, they often they don't want to mention it to their general practitioner. And, and the general practitioner often won't ask either. But it's a very important aspect of health, you know, that we're eliminating every day that it's not painful that it doesn't interrupt our like normal activities of daily living anything like that that's that is those are all signs and symptoms of that something is afoot something is going wrong in the gastrointestinal system Okay, so your body gives you clues and we just tend to sometimes ignore those or don't want to talk about them. Or as I said before, we just sort of assume it's normal. Like, oh, I'm getting a little older. So yeah. if I eat yeah. that, it hurts. But it doesn't have to be that way from what, I'm, from what I'm learning from you and from reading your book and that sort of thing. No, in the vast majority of cases, that's not, that not only is it not normal, it's often a sign that things need to be addressed. And the nice news is that, you know, there's a really systemic way way to go through and address everything, you know, to look at what are the different facets of optimal digestion, right? Like what are all the inputs that need to happen to have everything working smoothly? Have your gut feeling good? Have you feeling good? So that's the good news. Okay. So I'm going to do, let's do like a quick rapid fire, get some information on the table for people. So I'm okay. going to hit you with a couple questions and then I want to kind of get into that restoration that you, that you mentioned okay. and that, um, that you make a living helping people with. So, so let me hit you with some things. Okay. Define constipation. What does that even mean for some people? So constipation to me is a couple different things. One, it would be fewer than five bowel movements a week. It would be stool that is not well-formed and easy to pass. It would be stool that takes what I would call heroic measures to get out, which would might be laxatives, which might be using your hands, which might be using enemas, which might be using other implements. It would be stool that leaves you bleeding. It would be stool that's very hard and difficult to digest. 
There are, um, there's a list of criteria that's put out by a physician group that pretty much outlines all of that that I just explained. Yeah, what is that chart called? Do you remember? I'll, I'll put it in the show notes if neither of us can remember. But you can actually Google. It's not the prettiest chart I've ever seen. But it actually describes what's healthy and what's not mm-hmm. on either end of the spectrum, Yes, it? yes. I'm not, I don't know the exact name, but if you just Google like criteria for constipation or criteria for normal bowel movements, you would find it. All right, guys, the, I'm going to put the chart in the show notes and it's not for the faint of heart, but <laughs> everyone's going to be secretly looking at it. Trust me. That's right. And all I remember is you want to be a four on that chart. You want to be a four and, <laughs> and it's actually a little bit helpful because people don't know and they don't ask and they don't want to know. So, and it also, it, it goes both ends of the spectrum, but anyway, the reason, and this is the truth. The reason no one can remember the name of the chart is because everybody calls it the poop chart. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> All right. Okay. We'll share it. We'll share it. You mentioned laxatives. This is an issue. Um, I, I wish I actually could quote back to you what I read recently, but some sick millions of dollars a year are spent by just the U S mm-hmm. economy alone on, on, on off the shelf, mm-hmm. um, laxatives. And I don't yeah. think people are aware of what they're doing to their systems. Can you talk about that briefly? Cause I know women sometimes think that that's like, you know, a, a shortcut. Right. Becoming dependent on laxatives actually is more harmful for constipation in general than figuring out the underlying reasons for constipation. Okay. So it's very important for us to not get hooked on laxatives. You know, you want to be able to poop for free. Okay. Another question. (laughs) Another question that people had. Talk to me about antibiotics because people will just pop antibiotics, Dr. Jillian, if they have a cold, they'll start popping antibiotics. Talk to us about the role that antibiotics play with gut health, please. Okay. Well, the first thing to say about antibiotics is that they kill bacteria. Most colds and flus are caused by viruses. Okay. So antibiotics do not work against colds and viruses. And we know that antibiotics are grossly overprescribed, especially in the U S especially for children. Okay. So remember how I said a few minutes ago that we have this huge colony of beneficial bacteria that lives in our gut. Okay. So if we're taking antibiotics, antibiotics are non-discriminant killers, meaning they will kill bacteria. So what can happen is that by taking antibiotics, we can compromise our healthy beneficial bacteria. And when these guys become compromised or their numbers dip or like their diversity dips, what happens is that other bacteria or other organisms that are in the gut, like perhaps yeasts or things like that, those guys are what we call opportunistic, meaning they're looking for the opportunity to get their foot in the door. So when the good guys, when their numbers dip, if we think about the colon, the large intestine, like a big old parking lot, you want your spaces filled with those good guys. Antibiotics knock out some of the good guys from those parking spots, letting the other bad guys like yeast, which is not killed by antibiotics, move in. And then these very opportunistic, fast growing guys, they can sort of like readily repopulate. And then we have something that's called dysbiosis. And dysbiosis is an imbalance between your good beneficial bacteria and then potentially harmful or not so beneficial bacteria and other organisms. So some, and then our tolerance to probiotic, or excuse me, to antibiotics is variable. So some people can have a course of antibiotics and you know what? They tolerate it fine. It's a-okay. Like it's not a problem. Other people, it's this antibiotic use that kicks off a whole host of gastrointestinal and other health related problems. So 
when someone is taking antibiotics, a client of mine is taking antibiotics, I will often have them take probiotics alongside the antibiotics because probiotics are the supplemental form of those good, healthy, beneficial bacteria. And that helps bolster the population, nourish the population, and also, also offset some of the negative side effects from antibiotics, which include gastrointestinal distress and clostridium difficile or C. diff infection. Okay, I think that's really good to know because I'm not sure people are aware of the connection between something they're taking to cure their strep throat or they give their child right. and they don't know the, the, effect, the additional implications that it's having on the whole body. Yes, so the take-home take message there, and I want to just really nail this in, if you or your kid or your husband or your friend or anybody is taking antibiotics, you want to take probiotics along with the antibiotic. It's not going to offset. It's not going to like reduce the efficacy of the antibiotic. The antibiotic's not going to kill the probiotics. It just reduces the side effects. You take it for as long as you're on the antibiotic plus two times longer. So if you're on a week of antibiotics, you're on three weeks of probiotics. So probiotics are everywhere now. They're on, they're, uh, every third television commercial is for some probiotic. But can't you get probiotics through food also, Dr. Jillian? You can. All the fermented foods like kimchi and sauerkraut and even traditional pickles and yogurt and kefir, if you're if you can tolerate dairy products, uh, those all have and kombucha, which is fermented tea, all of those things have probiotics in them. Some people need a little bit more than that. They need a little bit more help than that. And then in that case, we take supplemental probiotics. But for those of us that maybe don't have tons of gut issues or they're not crazy about taking lots of supplements, we often can do really well by incorporating those fermented foods into our weekly diet. Okay, very good. So a couple more just reader questions that I want to share with you. Somebody asked if it's true that traditional soaps and shampoos, I'm referring to the kind that have parabens in them, you know, the stuff that smells uh -huh. really good and is sold at every drugstore, do those, uh, do those hurt the gut? Well, it's interesting because they have indirect consequences for the gut. One, there's, a, there's quite a few bits of data that suggest that these types of products, parabens, phthalates, whole nine yards, can actually make somebody more prone to type 1 food sensitivity, meaning that they induce some type of immunological change, some change in the immune system that makes us more prone to be reactive to foods. The other thing that they do is they can disrupt hormonal function, okay? So they can impact the thyroid, they can impact the ovary, they can impact the testy. So, and then that of course does tie back to the GI system, which is cycling and recycling and building and excreting and eliminating all of these hormones. So oftentimes, especially in people, and this is especially important with people that have inflammatory bowel conditions, such as colitis, microscopic colitis, Crohn's disease, ulcerative colitis, that they avoid the phthalates, the parabens, and also another class of chemicals, I guess that you'd call surfactants, which is things like SLS, sodium lauryl sulfate, also in a lot of shampoos, soaps, body washes, things like that, and DSS, dextrum sodium sulfate. It's in a lot of um, like home care products. Okay, so DSS, and what was the one prior to that? SLS. 
sodium SLS. Yes. Okay. I'm going to capture those for our audience so that they are in case they're driving and they don't need to be writing <laughs> this stuff down. Yes. But you know, my, just to in, inter, inject my two cents here, it is so easy now to buy phthalate and paraben free soaps and shampoos and so detergents. So, yeah, I just, so if we can just plug Amazon, Vitacost.com, tra- <laughs> Trader Joe's, Whole Foods, you know, it's yes. so easy now to get these um, more naturally based soaps and shampoos and detergents guys you know why not (laughs) even um even Lowe's home improvement has like a whole they have the method line which doesn't have those surfactants in terms of like home care like you know cleaning floors all that so even Lowe's I know target stores do so our point our point listeners is that this used to be you know cutting edge stuff and you used to have to go to the health store and buy your you know hemp yeah. shampoo and now the these options are everywhere they're not more expensive I can tell you from personal experience and yeah. it's just not worth it you don't know what you're doing to you to your family to your kids long-term health but I can tell you this is so helpful because I don't think people were associating their shampoo with their tummy ailments <laughs> It's true. Yeah, it's not just for hippies anymore. It's really not. And also, it's better for the environment, too. So it's like you're just, I don't know, you're just doing a whole world of good for everybody. Good, healthy karma. Okay, let's talk about this. Let's talk about some of the things that are in, I'm going to say, the standard American diet. We have listeners from all over, Dr. Jillian, but I think people understand that America has a reputation (laughs) for the iconic standard American diet. Um, Talk to us about some of the key elements of the standard American diet that are hurting our gut. Okay. Yeah, that's a great question because, of course, one of the major pieces of digestive health is the things, the very things that we are exposing our digestive system to every day, which is the foods that we eat. And so I think about this in terms of big bullies. So what are some of the foods that are very you know, commonly consumed that could potentially be these big bullies that could potentially be a problem and several come to mind and they're going to be, they're probably going to, you know, maybe make some people angry because I'm probably going to just be describing some people's diets. The first is gluten, which is the protein that's found in wheat and barley and rice and, you know, cereals and bagels and toast and pasta and uh, pizza and, you know, crackers and cookies and anything that has wheat flour in it. Gluten in the U.S., as we are consuming it today, is not the same molecule that even our grandmothers ate because of current farming and hybridization practices, okay? So this is something that's not, that that has grossly changed. And I'm not even talking about GMO. I'm just talking about like farming practices. What happened is that we had a good idea. We're like, okay, we are going to get more protein per hectare out of this wheat crop. So we're going to breed the plants that have the highest protein content. The consequence of that is that the gluten molecule, the protein molecule that came out of that, is heavier and denser and harder for our bodies to break down, which makes it more provocative and stimulating to the immune system. When something's hard to digest, guess what that means? That means that it's more likely to create gas and bloating and indigestion and belly aches and cramps. And then it's also more likely to induce things like immune change and autoimmune action. And of course, the most common target of our autoimmune action is thyroid disease. So gluten is huge. Dairy products, milk, cheese, ice cream, sour cream, all those things is another big one. Soy is a huge bully. 
has implications not just for gut health, but also for endocrine health and also for with children. Children should not eat soy because it slows down puberty in boys and speeds it up in girls. Okay, so that's really huge for the little ones. And then other potential problems are things like beans and legumes and also the nightshade family of veggies. I was teasing that I'm, you know, I grew up Italian and I grew up on nightshades, but your nightshades are, are tomatoes and white potatoes and eggplant and bell peppers. So all of those things, those are just like, and, and corn can be an issue. So like, that's just sort of like a broad look at foods that are commonly consumed that for the individual person, they might present a problem, especially if those problems have been longstanding and nothing is really helping, but they're still eating all of those foods. It's very important. A huge piece in gut restoration is finding and identifying any food sensitivities. And those are the types of foods that I look to first. That is really, really helpful. And you touched on a lot of so many questions for you. And I think that gluten is like I said sort of all the rage lately and there's a lot of jokes about how glutenism you know a first world problem or you know my great grandmother wasn't gluten free you know and and so on and so forth but we it's a different product than my grandmother was eating it is yes it is and it's different also um it's also different in other so even European wheat is different but rates of celiac disease and of non-celiac gluten intolerance which is a real thing Um, are rising worldwide. So it is a problem. And if there is a fad aspect to the gluten-free movement, when that's gone, there are still going to be a lot of people that still have to be gluten-free. And if people just looked at like the science and the literature, we could easily see that gluten is indeed a huge problem when we really look at it. I mean, often we like to just read blogs that like share our biases or share our opinions. And we're like, yeah, that's messed up. But like when you actually like look objectively at the science and at both sides, gluten is a big problem. Well, and I'm not a practitioner and I don't pretend to be, but anecdotally, I know so many people who have done nothing other than cut gluten out of their diet. And I don't mean that they went and bought all the gluten-free cookies on the cookie aisle. <laughs> that is yeah. not, not what I mean, yeah. <laughs> but they cut out grain, that type of grain wheat out of their diet. And they, it goes without saying they lost weight because the bloating just went, zoop, you know, um, they sort of melted and their skin yep, yep. cleared up. I mean, just enormous, enormous anecdotally, again, um, immediate impact from being off gluten. I mean, for, for a week, maybe you can, maybe you can tell us one story and then I'll move on. But I just think this is so important. Yeah. I could tell you my own story. I, uh, I gave up gluten about four years ago and, um, I was prone to migraines and I always had headaches, but I was getting migraines and gluten sort of brought my headaches into migraine territory. So now I haven't had a migraine in gosh, years and years and years. I've had headaches, but again, a headache is sort of a different animal. I also had my skin would break out. I'd have acne and I'd get like a little muffin top if I wasn't like on a super strict diet, which is crazy. So all of those things, oh, and my skin was very itchy. So all of those things, when I eliminated gluten disappeared. And then I've had, I can't even tell you how many people who have really just changed their life, not just with a eliminating gluten, but finding the foods that they're sensitive to and getting rid of them. Well, let's pull up two more. So let's talk about dairy for just a minute, because I don't mean to be so American centric today, but America was raised on dairy and we were all convinced that cow's milk is Mm -hmm. where the protein is and where the calcium is. Can you just touch on dairy? Because people who love it do not want to consider giving it up, but there are so many alternatives now. Yes. So here, so the thing with dairy is there's two issues. One is the protein in dairy, which is called casein. 
Casein kind of looks a little bit like gluten where it can be hard to break down and it can be stimulating to the immune system. So anything that stimulates the immune system is not it can be a, can be problematic. The other issue with dairy is lactose, and lactose is the sugar that is found in milk and milk products. Some people are lactose intolerant, meaning they cannot break down the lactose. So when there's a dairy sensitivity, it's important to figure out, are you reacting to the casein or are you reacting to the lactose? And I would agree that dairy is like grossly overconsumed in the United States. I, when I was researching the book, there was a chart that basically said 40% of our diet was dairy products in the U.S. I mean, it was crazy. So we eat something like four tons of cheese like a year. Like all of us, it's gross. Um, I mean, I love so, cheese. That's a little. I mean, much. <laughs> everybody loves cheese, but like it's it's sometimes it's a it's a dose issue. So again, for those reasons, dairy can be a problem. Well, here's my very professional point of view on on cheese. Cheese is just delicious, and mm-hmm. and I used to treat it almost like a food group, and then I gave it up completely. And now I'm at a point where I can treat it like the condiment that it is, and it doesn't yes. it doesn't have any ill effects on me that's one that's you know sample pool of one here um but is that sort of something that you see in your clinic a lot sometimes yes so sometimes it's not as if people have a like a a true sensitivity to food it is a dose issue so when we eliminate it for a while and then reintroduce we can see is this a true sensitivity meaning when i reintroduce does it bring all my symptoms back or it doesn't bring my symptoms back and so i can begin to incorporate little bits back in and see how i do okay guys so stick with us here because it's not about deprivation. It's about figuring out the balance that actually works with your body, isn't it? It is. And I often tell people like, look, I don't like when people say I can't eat that because the truth is you can eat whatever you want at any time. Like no one is holding a gun to your head. So I go to the place of like, I don't eat that because I don't want the consequences for how I feel when I eat that. So in other words, I choose feeling good over feel, over eating a food. So in that way, I'm in control of my own choices. I'm not just like this passive victim of a food sensitivity, right? So that in that way, it's very empowering rather than saying, oh, I can't eat that. Like, no, actually you can. You actually can eat whatever you want. I love that. I think the deprivation mindset is responsible for so much failure in our health and wellness journey. So I love the way that you said that. Okay, I'm going to pick on one more. You mentioned soy. And I find this so interesting because a lot of people say, well, I don't order the soy latte and I'm no veg head. I don't get the tofurkey, you know, so I don't eat soy. Uh People don't realize how much soy is in packaged food, I don't think, Dr. Jillian. Can you talk about that? Soy, especially like people that do a lot of like protein bars um, or poor quality supplements or packaged foods. Soybean oil is in a lot of packaged foods, like including crackers, including salad dressings. There's a lot of soy protein that is in protein bars. So you do want to really be careful about looking at your labels and reading your labels. What happens with soy is that the the proteins, soy contains protease inhibitors, okay? Protease is the enzyme your body uses to break down protein. So when we're eating soy, we are turning off protein digestion. Okay. And then when that happens, when we have these like big molecules of protein, what does that cause? That causes gas, that causes bloating, that causes cramping. Okay. 
also with soy, there are certain... There are certain carbohydrates in soy that are unrecognizable by the GI human, the human GI tract. So you have these big unbroken carbohydrate molecules that also in turn create gas and bloating and indigestion. And then soy oils, like soybean oils, are high in the omega-6 or more inflammatory type oils. So you do want to be really careful reading those labels because often we're consuming things that we're not even aware that we're consuming. So read those labels. Okay. So let's say that our listeners are identifying with what you're describing, uh, the symptoms or some of the conditions that you're mentioning, or they suspect that they might have a food intolerance or a food allergy. How does it work if they decide that they want help? What is the gut restoration program? So essentially what, what the gut restoration program is, is a multi-step process that addresses all of those major facets of good digestive health. So it helps you find and eliminate your food sensitivities if they are present and helps you incorporate foods that are good for the digestive tract. That's the first piece. The second piece is making sure that your gut flora, those healthy beneficial bacteria, that they are happy and healthy and robust and so they can do their thing. Part of that is that we make sure that there's not any type of like pathogenic infection on board or dysbiosis in the gut. The third piece is we make sure that the body's ability to digest foods is nice and robust. And I call that our digestive fire, which is the body's ability to break down proteins, fats, and carbohydrates into their little basic uh, building blocks of amino acids, fatty acids, starches through the use of enzymes and acids and bile, which is what our body uses to break down food. The fourth piece is making sure that the lining of the GI tract, meaning the, the esophagus, the stomach, the intestine, that that lining is, has good integrity and is intact. And then the last piece is balancing out that nervous system that we talked about, that second brain, which has a lot to do with stress management. So all of those things together, when we do all of those things together at the same time, you get enormous change, not just in the gastrointestinal system, but then you have a wonderful ripple effect towards achieving wonderful, even maybe perhaps optimal health. So guys, just so you know, in the book, Natural Solutions for Digestive Health, and again, I'll, I'll share the book with you all on the website on airwithella.com, the book actually goes through a lot of the major ailments. So IBS or ulcers, even asthma and arthritis. And Dr. Jillian has outlined specific mm -hmm. actions mm -hmm. to take if that is your, if that's the ailment that is troubling you. Um, and then you do walk through the program mm -hmm. so that we can, I mean, I, I honestly, I took this book with a pencil and I basically used it as my manual and it's, it's written that way. And I appreciate that so much but then if somebody wants to interact with you, can you do you see people online and that sort of thing mm -hmm. yes I do um, I do phone consults and I do Skype consults and um, if someone is interested in that they just need to email my clinic uh, clinic at metaboliceffect.com and my office manager and assistant Melissa who's lovely and wonderful will uh, set that up and facilitate that. All right, that's fantastic. Now, I want to go back to something that you said as we're running up on time here. I want to get in a couple more questions that folks had been asking. You mentioned the digestive fire. Can you talk a little bit about that? I love that phrasing. Can you mm -hmm. tell people a little bit about what that is and how to stoke that digestive fire? So this actually is very important. And 
when someone comes to me with like a lot of gas and bloating and distension after meals where they're like, oh, you know, I get full right away and like my belly just blows right up. I often think, oh, low digestive fire. So again, I call digestive fire the body's ability to break down proteins, fats, and carbohydrates, which is food, which is like your chicken salad and like your sandwich and all of that. Proteins, fats, and carbohydrates into their small digestible, absorbable little building blocks, which are amino acids and fatty acids and starches. The body does this through the use of enzymes that the pancreas makes, acid that the stomach makes, and bile that the liver makes that comes through via the gallbladder. So in the stomach, all of these things coalesce, the food, the enzymes, the bile, and the acid. And it's all supposed to get broken down into teeny tiny particles. These teeny tiny particles are what are actually absorbed through the intestine. If those particles are not small, they cannot pass through. Not only can they not pass through, they are more likely to garnish the attention of the immune system that lives in the gut, right? So then you're more likely to have an inflammatory immune response. Things that blunt digestive fire are things like acid-blocking drugs. That's a huge one. Also, chronic stress as we get older, and then eating foods that are not appropriate for you. So in other words, if you have a sensitivity to say gluten, we'll, talk, we'll use that one because we've been talking about it all day. If you're eating a ton of gluten and you're having all these large, unbroken, inflammatory particles that are you know, just permeating your digestive system, you're not going to be able to actually make enough digestive fire to break them down, enough enzymes. That's what I mean by digestive fire. Enough enzymes to break them down. So it's like this self-perpetuating problem that creates more inflammation in the gut that can actually compromise the gut flora downstream and set us up for a whole host of GI problems. And maybe now, as we're looking at it this way, you guys can begin to see how you do have to address those multiple layers of digestive health, the food, the digestive fire, the microbiome, the lining of the intestine and stress, all of those things have to be addressed to garner real change. Okay, quick question. How does somebody actually diagnose if they have a food sensitivity or a food intolerance even? Mm -hmm. So there, there is blood testing, but the data on that are kind of mixed. And I use blood testing sparingly. And this is to really rule in or out what I would call a issue with integrity of the small intestine because the small intestine is where our immune system and the food interface. So if you're having multiple immune reactions to multiple foods, it may not necessarily be the food. It might be the, the stage on which they all meet. So the best way to know if you have a food sensitivity might not be just through testing. And often I don't do testing. I'll do an elimination diet where we target foods that are potentially problematic that someone is eating a lot of and or foods that they already know like, you know what, um, I don't know, almonds, they kind of make me burp every time I eat them. So we target foods like that. We target the big bullies that are overconsumed. We do four to six weeks of elimination and then you strategically reintroduce those foods back in and your body will let you know. It always does. It doesn't lie. I love it. It doesn't sound complicated. Yeah, it's not. It's really not. To wrap up here, Dr. Jillian, I want to just hit you with some tips that you've shared and I'll hit you with maybe three and you tell us really quickly about them and uh, three actionable strategies that our, our listeners can take and implement, you know, today. So the first one, chew your food. Yes, this is my favorite. So when you eat, make sure you thoroughly chew your food. And the reason for this is digestion actually does start in the, in the mouth. 
with mechanical digestion, you breaking down your food. What this also does is it helps take off some of the stress biochemically from your digestive fire, which is the enzymes, the acid, and the bile. So you're doing yourself a huge service by sort of pre-digesting the food in the mouth before it gets to the stomach. Okay, can you please call my husband and child and inform this, inform them of this? <laughs> sure. Dinner actually can get consumed in five minutes. That means very little chewing is happening. <laughs> Okay. Number two, don't consume a bunch of water at mealtime. Mm -hmm. So you can drink a little bit of water, like eight ounces or so with water. You don't want to drink a ton of water because this can dilute your enzymes, acid, and bile. You want to just keep it to about a cup of water or less with meals. Okay. Makes sense. And third tip, go on walks. What does that have to do with digestion, Dr. Jillian? So remember we were talking about that last piece about stress and stress management, what leisure walking can do is help balance the branches of the nervous system that are responsible for like that fight or flight reaction and that rest or digest. Those two branches are kind of like in seesaw or like dancing with one another. The gentle walking along with like getting adequate sleep and having good relationships, that helps keep a nice healthy balance, which in turn actually helps promote gut regularity, meaning the frequency that you move your bowels. So it, it, it is sort of like a circuitous route, but it does come back to helping with gut motility. And that is one of the number one things that I recommend for people who are constipated is to go on like a 30 to 60 minute leisure walk at least four times a week. It can be hugely beneficial. Okay, good. Very interesting. Okay, well, Dr. Jillian, thank you so much. This has been, this is just the tip of the iceberg too, <laughs> I know, because I have about 20 more questions I could ask you. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to share with the readers this book so that they can check it out. And guys, it has recipes in here. It has so many things we didn't even touch on. It has a list of foods that you should be trying to incorporate into your diet. The focus is not on everything you need to take out on your diet. It's actually very, very balanced. And um, Dr. Jillian shares specific recipes as well as specific ingredients or whole foods that you should be trying to get into your diet on a daily or weekly basis to help out, to help support your digestive system. Um, plus the program that you walk us through. So I just cannot say enough about how much this book has helped me, how much it's helped people that I've given it to. And, and I thank you for joining us today and sitting through all of our questions, including our questions about poop. <laughs> You're quite welcome. And thank you so much for having me. Okay, everyone, I hope you enjoyed today's show and got something out of it that you can use. If you did and you want to learn more, just go to onairwithella.com, where I put up links to all of the good stuff that we talked about today and more information about our guests and all the good stuff that you did not need to write down today because I got you covered. If you like the show, here are two ways you can pay it forward. Tell a friend, help spread the word, and leave a review in iTunes or Stitcher, whichever one you use. That helps the show enormously get traction, and our goal is to spread the word. So if this show spoke to you in any way, or it made you think of somebody who could get something out of it, share this with them. And if you want to send me feedback, you can do that directly. Here's how this works. Go to onairwithella.com, find the page that's called Connect, and send me an email. You can tell me anything you want to hear about, ways you think we can improve the show, or just what's on your mind. So I want to hear from you. If you have constructive feedback, tell me directly. If you love the show, share it with somebody and tell iTunes and or Stitcher. 
Every great review helps, and we read every one. Thanks for listening, and thanks for inspiring me. You are, quite simply, awesome.